Our first lesson comes not from the first book of the Bible, but from the last book of the Bible. I'll explain during the sermon why the change. But hear these words from Revelation chapter 21, beginning of the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant John to record these words in Revelation chapter 21. We believe these words not only had power in the day that John wrote them, but these words have power this day because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word for us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Do you think much about heaven? Do you think much about heaven? I know I don't enough. I was struck later in this week, far too late to change the reading in the bulletin, that in fact, I needed to preach about heaven. As we face difficult times, it seems to resonate with what Jesus' heart is for his church in difficult times to give us a picture of heaven. It's what happened at the end of the first century, as recorded here in Revelation chapter 21, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles or on your phones, there was John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee, the beloved, who now is an old man, is in prison for the gospel under the Roman Empire on Patmos. And as he's in prison there, Jesus appears to him and gives them this vision the whole of the book of Revelation is this vision. And, and our response often as the church to the book of Revelation seems to be either being wholly obsessed with Revelation or wholly ignoring Revelation. And in the Anglican Episcopal world, we ang angle more towards the wholly ignoring it. Many people feel like it's just inconceivable. It's hard to understand. It's hard to comprehend. It's hard to interpret. And yet the truth is, the message is quite clear. Jesus is giving a vision to John 
for his church, a church that is suffering, suffering under Emperor Domitian at the end of the first century, some of the worst persecution the church of Jesus Christ would ever face. And so Jesus gives them a picture of heaven. It reminds me of the story of some seminarians who were at a Fuller Seminary in California and were wanting to get into the gymnasium after hours so that they could play basketball. And so they went to one of the janitors and, and sort of bartered and said, hey, could, could we pay you or something to open up uh, the gymnasium after hours so we can play basketball? And the janitor said, you don't need to pay me. Uh, just, I have to stay with you. It's policy. But just let me flip through your textbooks as you're playing. And they said, okay, that sounds like a good trade to us. And so he sits there and reads the textbooks and they play basketball. And one day they noticed that he was reading their commentaries on the book of Revelation. And they had just been in a class that day where one of their learned professors had said, no one can understand anything that John's vision means. It's incomprehensible. It's not to be preached. It's so confusing. And so they look at this janitor and these learned seminarians say, so you're reading about Revelation? He said, oh, I love Revelation. And they said, well, do you know what it means? And he said, yes. They said, really? What does it mean? He said, it's really easy. Jesus wins. And oh, how a suffering church needs to hear that message. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Even when it seems otherwise, Jesus wins. That's what this vision of heaven is for the church. And as we unpack this vision of heaven, here's the amazing thing. Jesus gives this vision of heaven to his church to help us live right now. He gives us a vision in the midst of suffering so that we can be informed on how to live now in light of that vision. In these seven short verses, here's what Jesus says to his church as it suffers. Jesus says, you have a future. I mean, right there, that's, that's the good news. You have a future. You have a future in me. Though it may seem that everything's falling apart, whether it's in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your workplace, in this world, in this nation, you have a future if you're in me. But not only do you have a future, Jesus says that you have a future because of my finished work. The reason you have a future is I've done all the work necessary to guarantee and secure your future. But not only do you have a future because of my finished work, but that future based on my finished work is going to reframe the whole way you live now. Your whole way of living can be reframed, changed and transformed and invigorated, reinvigorated because of that vision of heaven. See, Jesus says first, you have a future. Do you hear that? You have a future? I love in verse one how it gets to the scope of this future. It's not a small future Jesus is promising his church. It's an enormous cosmic future. Verse one, I saw a new heaven and a new earth 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And that language of new heaven and new earth, be careful that we don't hear heaven there and think, oh yeah, we're talking about heaven. Heaven's that ethereal, spiritual, intangible place. No, this language of a new heaven and a new earth is the exact same language of Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, this future God gives us is not some ethereal but very earthy reality. It's, it's cosmic. The future God gives us is an embodied physical future. Heaven is real in a tangible sense. That's what the Bible teaches again and again. That's why we believe that a man came back from the dead with a body. Jesus did not appear as a ghost to his disciples and say, ooh, you've got a spiritual future. He showed up and he ate broiled fish in their presence to declare to them, you too one day like me will have a perfected raised body in a perfected raised future. As William Temple, one of the archbishops of Canterbury, said, Christianity is one of the most materialistic religions because we believe that matter matters. One of my favorite moments in C.S. Lewis is The Great Divorce. If you've read it, this sort of picture fictitious of new uh, arrivals to heaven, getting off the bus, as it were, to heaven, and, and these, these human beings that get off the bus to go to heaven experience their physical reality, their former earthly selves, as almost ghost-like in comparison to the solidity of heaven. It says, in fact, in Lewis's words, that the blades of grass in heaven hurt the new arrival's feet because it's that real and that physical. And of course, it's not just a physical future that we're given, but it's one that has purpose and activity. It's amazing to see in verse two how the vision goes on to say it's a city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And of course, you're expecting a garden, aren't you? Right? You're, you're thinking in terms of a garden that we're going to return to the garden. And don't worry, there's a garden, as Revelation 22 verse 4 tells us, but the garden's inside the city. It's kind of like Central Park in the middle of the city. Because for the ancient Near Eastern mind, the city is the place of culture and work and activity and craftsmanship and artisanship. The city is where things happen. People don't lay around on green pastures. They can do that in Central Park. But in the city, it's active and creative. You remember those old Philadelphia cream cheese commercials? Some of you in the room are not old enough to remember them. But for those of you who do, what, what did that whole picture, you know, that picture sitting there on, on clouds, strumming hearts. And what was the sort of the common theme in it? Boredom. Right? You're sort of sitting around, strumming harps, bored. And that unfortunately has been the vision of heaven that so many of us have been given. I think this is captured so well by Mark Twain in Huckleberry Finn when he, we read that Miss Watson went on and told me about the good place. She said all a person would have to do was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever so I didn't think much of it. I mean, would you? Instead, the vision Jesus gives his church in suffering is a city 
full of life and activity and skill and workmanship. It's really neat, actually, later in the vision, chapter 21 and verse 24 and 25, we have this strange phrase that says, the kings of the nations shall bring their glory into it. And and you think, well, what glory could the kings of the nations bring in? I mean, doesn't God get all the glory? Why would the kings of the nations have any glory to bring in? And commentators have said again and again, what this means is, Because the gospel has gone out to the four corners of the earth, every nation, tribe, and tongue, and culture has received the gospel, that there will be representatives of each of those nations and cultures and tribes and tongues that come into this new city, and with them, they bring the best of that culture. They bring with them the uniqueness and the variety of the beauty we already just get a foretaste of now. You understand what this means, of course. It means we have sushi in heaven and butter chicken and brisket and maple syrup and poutine and hockey. The cultures are brought in, the best of the cultures, into this vibrant living city. But also because every tribe and nation and culture comes in, it also means that those peoples are there people of every tongue and tribe and color and background come into that city and suddenly it begins sounding like Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, no longer on the red hills of Georgia, but instead in the kingdom where sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. It's that picture of Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, again, that Jesus gives John and his church in suffering. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the lamb. The nations are there in this city. But God is there as well. God is there, verse three. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That word dwelling place is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word tabernacle. God who comes in tabernacles with us, tense with us, lives with us. No wonder the language is of a bride and a bridegroom because the message of the whole of scripture is that God ultimately wants to marry you and live with you forever. It's that vision of chapter 22, verse four, where we're told that If God dwells in tabernacles and tents among us, we will see his face. We'll see him face to face. It reminds me of that thing that happens as your children start to grow older. I'm finding that as my children get older, that thing that used to happen so often between a child and a parent that, to be honest, sadly, because we're so busy as parents, It gets kind of annoying often. 
Is the child constantly saying, Daddy, watch me. Look at me. Watch what I'm doing. See what I'm doing. And as as children grow, they, they stop. I don't think we ever stop, but we stop asking. But at the heart of what it means to be human, we desire our Father to look on us. Suddenly, the promise prayed for what? Almost 4,000 years. It goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 6. That that ultimate prayer of blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And that looked like I was making a bad gesture. Look at his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is fulfilled in this heavenly vision. A physical city full of purpose and full of God. Jesus says, that's your future. To a church suffering. Can you imagine the church suffering hearing that? This is your future if you're in me. I mean, one minute into heaven, I think we're all going to realize in the words of Friedrich Buechner that our wildest dreams hadn't been half wild enough. But here's the thing. Jesus says that not only you have a future, but you have a future because of his finished work. You don't have a future because you have achieved something. You don't have a future because you've earned something or you've attained something or you've managed through this troublesome life to hang on and cling to something. No, this future is yours because of his work alone and that work is finished. It's not a future event. It took place nearly 2,000 years ago as he hung upon the cross. See, again, Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5. Listen to the newness, the the recreation of creation. What's not there? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. All things, creation and creatures made new. I mean, I don't know about you, but I am so aware of my imperfections. You know, a couple years ago, uh, I was on Halloween outside our house and we had uh, some kids come up to the house. I wasn't wearing a costume. I don't know, my, my facial hair or something must have done this. And this kid looked up to me. He was dressed in some kind of Avengers outfit and he looked at me and he said, you look like Iron Man. With awe, you look like Iron Man. And I, I said, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> I'm thinking, I look like Robert Downey Jr., And then he said, but your face is a lot rounder. (laughs) I'm the chubby Iron Man. (laughs) We're so aware of our imperfections. But this new heaven and new earth, these new creatures in a new creation are not just whole and healthy which is so vital, especially as we suffer illness and disease. But 
we're whole in the sense that sin is gone. Everything wrong in us is gone. It's done. Literally, it's done. Verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. It is done. And if that word sounds familiar to you, John wrote almost the exact same words. In the gospel he wrote several decades before this. Well, how many decades? But whenever he wrote John, the gospel... See, in John chapter 19, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, bearing the sin of humanity, we read that Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. See, on the cross, Jesus was bearing everything wrong in you and in me. And in that moment, that declaration, it is done, it is finished. He's speaking about the power of sin and death over your life and over my life. It is done, it is finished, it's complete. It's a perfect sacrifice. It's a whole sacrifice. It's a full sacrifice. It's a sufficient sacrifice. That's why when we break the bread at communion, this declaration, this declaration of that finished work of Jesus, where we take the bread just before distribution and we break it and we say, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed once for all upon the cross. And there are some Sundays where I want us to just stop right there and pray for like a week at those words. Once for all. You may fall, you way, you will. You will fall back into sin again and again in your life. You will suffer the effects of sin in your life again and again. But the power of sin and death in your life has been put to death. When death stung Jesus, death stung itself to death. And we need to hear this. We need to know that this future is not based on anything we can achieve, but on his finished work. Because we will struggle, we will worry, we will wonder. As Eugene Peterson says, all the persons of faith I know are sinners, doubters, uneven performers. And we are secure, not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. That is what it means. It is done. It is finished. It is decided It is yours. But it impacts the way we live now. See, Jesus says to a church that is suffering, you have a future because of my finished work on your behalf. It's yours. But that future is now going to reframe the way you live now. 
That future is going to inform the way you live now. It's not just some future event. I'll fly away, oh Jesus, I'll fly away one, one day, by and by. And I'll just sort of get through whatever's happening now. No, that future reality enters into our reality the moment we come into a relationship with Jesus. That future is living into us now and informing our lives now. Verse 7 says, For the one who conquers, this is their heritage. I mean, imagine hearing that. For the one who overcomes, all that's going on, this is your heritage. This is the gift, the secure promise for those coming through the tribulation, coming through suffering, coming through pain. Do you see how it sort of turns everything upside down? Because I don't know about you, but in my life, the world's way of looking for hope in the future right? Looking for hope is to kind of look at our present circumstances and then based on those present circumstances to make an assessment, do I have hope in the future, right? Look at my present circumstances, assess it all. Does this add up to a hopeful future? But because of this vision that Jesus gives of, of, of this secure future, instead, he turns us right side up and says, no, this is how you do this, O Christian. You want to find hope? You look at that future vision, and from that, you find hope to live in the present because of the future. It changes our entire perspective. Listen to the words of Johnny Erickson Tata. The Christian speaker and evangelist who in 1967 became a quadriplegic, ending her Olympic and professional athletic hopes. And she writes these words. This is about reframing our present based on our future. She says, when God sent a broken neck my way, he blew out the lamps in my life that lit up the here and now and made it so captivating. The dark despair of total and permanent paralysis that followed wasn't much fun, but it sure made heaven come alive. And one day, she writes, when our bridegroom comes back and I'm still suffering in this chair, there's not a doubt in my mind that I'll be fantastically more excited and ready for it than if I were still standing on my two feet. In the meantime, Suffering hurries my heart homeward. Suffering hurries my heart homeward. Jesus is in no way denying the pain that we face in our present. But instead he's reframing it in light of the future that he has won for us. It's the reason Paul who's speaking in his day to people, Christians who are really suffering, suffering for the gospel. He can say in Romans 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. So do you think much about heaven? I don't think much about heaven nearly enough. To a church 
that is suffering, to a Christian who is suffering. No matter what you're facing this week at home, at work, as you are scandalized by the news, as you sit in fear of what the future may hold for you, Jesus comes to you in that vision he gave at Patmos afresh and says, look to the future that I have accomplished for you by my finished work and let that future reframe the way you live today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. It is done. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.